in a Greek word that means good news. Or literally, news that brings great joy. For those living in the time of Jesus, the word gospel was used to refer to life-altering, history-making, world-shaping news. So, for example, in 490 B.C., when Greece defeated Persia in the Battle of Marathon, the, the gospel, the good news of their victory, was proclaimed by a messenger of the good news, a gospel preacher, so to speak. So when the word gospel is used in the New Testament, it's clearly referring to the life-altering, history-making, world-shaping news about Jesus and his kingdom. It communicates something that has happened in history, and as a result, the world will never be the same. The gospel of Jesus is good news about a conquering king and a battle won. The battle that Jesus won is against sin and death and devil and for righteousness, life, and his good and just reign. So today, we're going to begin a new series called The Gospel for Life, working through Paul's letter to the Galatians. Because Galatians, as much as any book in the Bible, Paul shows how radically central the gospel is to all that we're about as Christians and as churches. So since the gospel is so central to the message of the church, we need to ask the question, what is the gospel? And... To see if we're really teaching you the gospel, I'm going to give you an opportunity to write it out. So here we go. We've got uh, some cards that are going to be passed around the room, little cards. Think about if someone was to ask you, hey, I need you to write out for me briefly. Go ahead and pass out the cards. I need for you to write out for me briefly. What is the gospel? I hear you Christians talk about that. I I only have a few minutes. So write out briefly what you believe the gospel to be. And then you just might win an iPad. I don't know where it's going to come from, but you just might, it's possible you might win one. So I'll give you a couple minutes. Uh, if you need a writing utensil, the ushers have those as well. And this would be really easy. If you want to show me later what you wrote, fine. This is just for you, just to see how, how we're doing and teaching you the gospel. We'll just take a couple minutes here. What is the gospel? All right, I can't wait to hear what what the results are. So the Apostle Paul was arguably the most zealous of the apostles for the gospel, if we could put it that way. It's because he had a particular calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, that is, people who are not Jews, coming out of a Jewish context that was pretty radical. And so when some teachers began moving into the territory where he had preached the gospel in a place called Galatia, he got angry and wrote a letter, and that letter was written to the Galatians, and we have it in our Bibles in the New Testament. So this morning, we're going to look at the first 10 verses of chapter 1 of Galatians, and what we're going to be asking, the question before us is, what is at stake in not getting the gospel right? What is at stake in not getting the gospel right? So we'll look at verses 1 to 10 of Galatians. And it goes like this. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us 
from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you preached, you, you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Join me as we pray. Father, the gospel is your gospel. It's the gospel of your Son. Would you, by your Spirit, help us to grasp the significance of getting the gospel right and recognize what a great gift we have to have your word clearly teaching us the gospel. Thank you, Father, for the works that make what the gospel is, Jesus Christ, death and resurrection for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So Paul needs to start out, like he frequently does his letters, talking about what he is, who he is. He's an authorized messenger. And that's really important because he's got some people who are trying to discredit him and his message. So an apostle, we hear that word a lot in church. It means one who is sent. It speaks of one who has personal, direct, delegated authority of being commissioned to represent another. So Paul had been commissioned by God to proclaim with authority the message of salvation in Jesus Christ, that is the gospel. And he's really clear. He just comes straight out and says, my calling as an apostle is not from man, not through people. Uh, Paul knew that his assignment was not from any human source, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul knew his commission was directly through Jesus from God the Father. Paul's opponents, the ones that were trying to undermine him and distort the gospel that he proclaimed were claiming his apostolic authority was from church leaders, not directly from God. And so Paul, one thing he does frequently in his letters, and he does it a couple times at least in this introduction, is he identifies God and Christ by what they do. The Bible doesn't have a lot of idle speculation or any idle speculation on who God is. God is known, Christ is known by what they do, particularly for the salvation of people. So he says... My calling as an apostle is through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Who's God the Father? The one who raised Jesus from the dead. Now that's part of the gospel. Paul identifies God the Father by his work in raising Jesus from the dead. So God and Christ are known by their saving work. In other words, God the Father and Christ accomplish the gospel and reveal the gospel. God the Father is really Jesus-centered. He's really all about his Son because that's the only way you get to him is through his Son, and he's desperately eager to see people saved, so he wants to be sure that he's always identified by the fact that he is the one who raised his son Jesus from the dead. So Paul says, this is my commission, and I, uh, all the brothers who are with me, Paul is not a loner, he had a team of people around him all the time. Now, it is, if you read Paul's letters, uh, a lot of times at this point in his letter, he, he gives thanks for it. So he'll say something like, I give thanks to God for you. He skips over that 
step in this because he's not feeling very thankful because he's pretty upset. So this is, Paul is not happy. So he doesn't take time to give thanks for them. But he says, I'm writing to the churches of Galatia. So he meant for this letter to be shared among a group of churches that were in what is today Turkey. So um, North Asia, Central Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And probably these churches were established on his and Barnabas' first missionary journey. You read about that in Acts 13 to 14. Okay, so that's that first couple of verses. In verse 3, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Frequent for Paul to use those terms, and they're not just a formality. This is really a quick summary of the gospel. Grace and peace from God the Father. Summarizing the essence of the gospel. Grace is the source of the gospel. It's the source of God's good will to save us. And peace is the benefit of those who receive the grace of God. Uh, Peace is peace with God. God has resolved his conflict he had with us. You say, I didn't know we had a conflict with God. He had a huge conflict with us, and he resolved it, and he gives us peace. And peace with one another, who are God's people, and peace about the fact that he is for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So that's a quick summary of the gospel. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 4, he expands that summary a little bit, and he gets at, uh, what Paul, when, again, when Paul talks about Jesus, he immediately identifies him in terms of what he did for those who have received his grace and peace. That is, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So this is another slightly expanded summary of the gospel, grace and peace. What is that about? How did that get to us? Because Christ gave himself for our sins. This is the supreme truth about Christ in relation to our salvation is that he gave himself for our sins. He gave himself to bear our sins and the punishment for them so that we could be forgiven of our sins and freed from sin's dominion. So that's why Paul says that Christ gave himself to deliver us, to rescue us, that means, from this present evil age. So we needed to... We need to realize that what we needed to be saved is not just little help. We needed rescuing. It was an emergency situation that we were in. Like a person drowning. A person drowning, you don't just say, hey, let me give you seven tips on how to deal with with water. When they're drowning, they need rescuing. They need someone from outside to step, swoop in and rescue them. Or if you're in a burning house, you don't, hey, let me tell you how to cope with fires. Three steps to a happier life making your way through the fire. No, you need rescuing. You need someone to deliver you. And so that's what we needed. Problem is, uh, we don't think we were so helpless to save or deliver or rescue ourselves because we don't think sin is that big a deal. We're so used to it, it just seems pretty trivial. So, well, it's just normal. It's just who we are. We can't help it. We think that way. But we need to consider how awful sin must be that for God to be just to forgive us The only way God could be just and forgive us is he had to give give his son to, to die for our sins. That is how bad sin is. The death of Christ only could could rescue us from our sins. So that's why the gospel, the good news about Christ's substitutionary victory for us, is so good because the bad news is so bad. I love the way that John Piper sums up the gospel. So you might, so here you go, here's, we'll be doing this frequently, off and on, throughout the study. What is the gospel? Here's one way to say it. 
The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over all his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. Okay, how many got it right? No, never mind. There's different ways to put it. Well, Diana got it right. Way to go. Okay. Uh, No, that's not the only way to say it, but it's a great short summary. We need to be able to do that. Short, two or three sentences, how do I express the gospel? So Christ didn't only accomplish forgiveness of our sins, guaranteeing that we will go to heaven, but according to this verse, he broke sin's power and grip on us so that the evil of the times in which we live, you think there were good old days? There never were any good old days. You may think there was, but there never were. They're just the evil old days, right? With some good mixed in. Jesus also broke sin's power and grip on us so that the evil of the times in which we live don't overwhelm and obliterate his saving work in us or our faith. And he did it according to the will of our God and Father. It was God's loving, good, perfect, and powerful will that he freely and mercifully saved us when we only deserved his judgment. That is such good news that Paul can't help himself and he launches into praise and says, to whom... God, to to God be the glory forever and ever. All the glory for our deliverance, for our rescuing, for our salvation only comes from God always and forever. We're not going to be celebrating what we did uh, in terms of our salvation. It's all the glory belongs to God completely for our salvation. And that should cause us to praise him. That's one thing the gospel should cause us to do is to say, I'm so amazed, I'm so astounded that God would do this for us when we didn't deserve it. And that he did it at such great cost and with his very best, his son. That's why Paul, in verse 6, says, I'm so amazed. Paul, what are you so amazed about? Let me tell you what Paul is so amazed about. He is astonished that they are departing from the gospel that they received. Have you ever known someone who had a lot going for him? But when he chooses, then he chooses a direction that will undermine the very advantages which would have resulted in such much good in their lives? If you think about it for more than a minute or even a few seconds, whether in your own life or in your family or friend, you watch somebody make a really ridiculous choice that launches them into a place that undermines all the, the good that could have come had they stayed on the course that they were on. And so we can all think of those kinds of examples. Well, this is Paul's reaction to them. In the same way, he says it's astonishing, it's amazing, it's shocking that the Galatians would desert God who called them in the grace of Christ through the gospel to a different gospel because God is the one who called them through the gospel. God doesn't call us by the gospel of grace and then later come back with a contradictory message. He doesn't say, I'm saving you this way, then later on kind of bait and switch and add on some things to that. No, he, the gospel is always the gospel. God is not a salesman that switches uh, the terms. Now, the Galatians thought, as we'll see later on, they were getting a fortified, enhanced, improved uh, uber version of the gospel that would bring them closer to God, making them more acceptable to him, making making them kind of a more an elite group of Christians. That's very tempting for us. Hey, if you do take these steps, you can be in there. You can be one of the elite group. And but instead of doing that, instead of getting closer to God, Paul says you're actually departing from the one who called you through the gospel because that is how he called you. He called you through the gospel. And when you depart from the gospel, you don't get closer to God, you turn away from him. 
how can they think they need a different gospel? In verse 7, then Paul goes on and says, not that there is another one, there really is not another gospel. There's only one gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There is no other gospel besides the one entrusted to the apostles. Um, We have that in the scriptures. So the apostolic gospel is what we have recorded in the New Testament. So there isn't any other thing, any other gospel but that. Anything but the apostolic gospel is a distortion, it's a perversion, it's a changing, it's a reversal of the true gospel that only causes trouble for God's people. So if you tamper with the gospel at all, you make it a non-gospel, not to be tampered with. We've got to be sure that we're correct on the gospel. That is the central message of the church. And then in verse 8, Paul uses some pretty severe language. He says, If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In other words, Paul, well, go, put it this way. The gospel preached by Paul is not the true gospel because Paul preached it. The gospel Paul preached is true because the risen Christ gave it to Paul to preach. Say it again. The gospel preached by Paul and the other apostles is not true because they preached it. It's true because God gave it to them directly to preach. He gave them the message. He did the works, Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and he has commissioned them to preach and record the message for us. So that's why Paul says, if anybody else, including us, me and the other apostles, preach to you a different gospel, don't believe it. So probably what his opponents were saying something like this. You know, the gospel that Paul preached to you was not bad. It's okay. It just wasn't complete. He, he left out some parts of the gospel. So he, didn't just bring, he just didn't bring you the whole gospel is the problem. We have additional truth you need, like circumcision and holy customs, and we'll see more of that later. So Paul says, if we or an angel from heaven, if you're tricked by an angel, even if his name is Moroni or Nephi, or anyone else preaches you a gospel different from the one some of you are going, huh, what are you talking about? I'm not going to tell you. I'll just, you can ask me later. How do I know angel, angels' names? Or a person writing a New York Times bestseller about their near-death experience of going to heaven and back should preach to you a different gospel than the one Paul preached? Don't believe it. No matter what the source, even if it's an apostle, even if it's an angel, no matter who it is, no matter what good hair they have and they appear on TV, don't believe them if they're preaching to you other than the apostolic biblical gospel. And they should not be embraced in the name of tolerance. He says, let them be accursed. What is that? You know, we, talk, we use the word curse. We don't take cursing seriously. Uh, cursing for us is just something you, a name that you call somebody or a word that you utter when you're angry and you're upset about something. You're angry. You're expressing your disdain or anger about something. Well, Paul was upset. Yes, he was upset, but his anger was due to the eternal harm that those who receive a distorted gospel can experience by receiving a distorted, perverted gospel. So what Paul's saying is those who distort the gospel deserve God's judgment. He's not just flying off the handle and using bad language. He's saying they deserve God's eternal judgment, obviously, unless they repent of that and they correct, which sometimes that happens, that's good. But if they keep on the track they're on with trying to promote a non-gospel, a different gospel, then they deserve condemnation. 
Uh, most of us have some concept that those who do evil deserve punishment. We think of just don't, don't watch or listen to the news. If you do, there's a lot of bad stuff. Uh, so, so like dictators gas, uh, uh, gassing their own people with chemical weapons, um, things horrible like that, human trafficking, so on. We recognize those things are evil. But according to God, the very worst evil, those things are evil and horrible, but the very worst evil of all is distorting the one message that by believing, people can be forgiven of their evil and receive eternal life. So that's the worst evil and deserves the worst punishment. So what are some of the gospel distortions of our time? I'll just give you a brief, li- brief list, quickly, overview. We'll address some of these things later. But So what are some of the ways that the gospel gets distorted? Uh, as, just like in Paul's day, some of these have some truth in them, some good in them, but as we said, any distortion of the gospel, anything that you rely upon in place of the gospel, is uh, damnable. So here we go. First of all, there's moralism. That goes like this. Basically, I'm a good person. Uh, who, do, who isn't perfect, but I try not to hurt anybody. God will accept me because I try hard to do the best I can. Besides, I know lots of people who are worse than I am. That's moralism. Or the religious version of that, we might just call religiosity. It's like moralism, but you add church activity and, and religious duties and say, I'm a pretty good person. I, I'm faithful. I attend church. I do good things for God and so on. Or very similar to that one is we might call it missionalism. I know God accepts me and I'm getting good grades on my spiritual report card because I sponsor children in third world countries. I support several missionaries. I volunteer in soup kitchen at least once a year and I've been on at least six short-term mission trips. Those things are good. I encourage us all to do any of these things. But when we trust in those, as if those make us a step up in favor with God, then we're off base. Or there's a self-esteem therapy version. It goes something like this. Here's a version of this gospel. I learned that before I can love others, I have to love myself. My worst problems stem from my wounds that I have inflicted on myself and what others have done to me. Through years of therapy, I'm finally learning to believe in myself and feel good about myself. So that is not a saving gospel. That may make you feel good for a while, but that's not the gospel. Or there's the universalism, which is just, hey, there's no problem with God. What's the big deal? He's going to save everybody anyway. That's not the gospel. Or there's prosperity gospel. God wants to give me a good, good health and wealth in this life. If I have enough faith and try to live a good life and claim God's promises, he will give me health, wealth, good spouse and kids. And that's not the gospel either. Or there's the cults who come to our doors. Probably most of us have experienced this. So the typical storyline of a, some of the cults goes something like this. It's that the church had lost the truth uh, along the way, lost the gospel, maybe still had some parts of the truth. Usually they say the Bible is corrupted, and then a prophet comes along and restores the truth, adding correcting writings or books to the Bible. The gospel they bring may still have some components of the truth, but they add things that make it a non-gospel, another gospel. So often those who bring another gospel will affirm they believe the same things you do. It always amazes me. I'll ask, well, so do you believe we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? And they'll say, yes, I believe that. So I'll query them on other things, and then I'll finally say, uh, well, 
if, if we believe the same things, what do you have that I need? Or it sounds like we're already in agreement. All along, I know that even though we share the similar vocabulary, we don't have the same dictionary, if you know what I mean. Different definitions for different terms, same terms. And so I'll keep pressing them, and they'll finally come out, and they'll begin sharing what I need to, in addition to the gospel. Uh, usually, like, read a book until I get heartburn, join their church, organization, uh, rules and rituals, and so on. So any gospel that is other than Christ sa- saves us by his life, death, and resurrection alone, that we receive through faith alone, is not a true gospel. And those who distort it deserve to be condemned by God unless they repent. And finally, Paul says, So am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please men? If you know Paul, he's like the least man-pleasing person in the, in the whole Bible, except for Jesus. But the reason that I think he's saying that is because it seems like what his, the gospel-distorting teachers were claiming that Paul only presented part of the gospel in order to win favor by preaching an easier gospel. That's how people think of the gospel that we're saved by grace. Oh, you're just making it too easy. And really, people don't like the easier version of the gospel, even though it's not an easier version. Uh, The reality is that by nature, we reject the true gospel, that we are saved only by grace through faith, because we're offended that there's nothing, not one thing about us, who we are and what we do, that can merit our salvation. That's not a popular message. If Paul was trying to win favor with people, he would have given them a message like, okay, gospel, but really, what you really want is seven steps to a better you. Just tell me what I have to do to get God's favor and be a better me. The gospel is only good news to those who know they cannot ever, by anything we are or do, earn or merit favor with God. Ever. Not starting point, not continuing point, not ever. It's never going to be based upon anything that we are. It's always going to be based upon who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. All we can ever do is receive grace through Jesus Christ. And that message is not an easy message because it goes cross-grain with what we, how we normally operate. We'll, we'll believe anything. Just tell me what rituals to do, what steps to take, anything. Join this group, whatever. Just don't tell me that there's nothing I can do to save myself except receive mercy from God by believing in Christ's death and resurrection. So we'll see on this journey through Galatians that not only are we saved by grace through faith alone in the gospel, but all the power and motivation for living in obedience to God comes through the gospel. Oh yeah, the gospel does change and transform our lives. So it's not... Apart from that, it's just not based upon the transformation. It causes the transformation of our lives, and we'll see that. So many Christians see the gospel as the ABCs of being a Christian, that first step of faith by which we are saved. Then you move on to various means of self-help and religious self-improvement. What we'll learn in Galatians is that the gospel isn't just the ABCs of the Christian life, but the A through Zs until we meet Jesus face to face. The gospel is the gospel for life. And one of the ways that we remember and proclaim the gospel visually is through receiving the Lord's Supper together. So we're going to do that. The way we're going to do that this morning is there are five stations, at least there were the last time I checked, around the room. Here's one. There's one over here, one back there was a couple over here. 
And we're going to have a couple songs of worship, and you are going to get up out of your seats and go take the bread and the cup and bring it back to your seats, and we'll receive the elements together. The reason we're going to do that is that we're commanded in the Scripture to remember the gospel frequently. And so, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he said, I receive from the Lord. So this is something he received from the Lord, just like the gospel itself, the pictorial representation of the gospel and the communion we have in Christ with that. I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Code word, you're proclaiming the gospel when we take the Lord's Supper. We're saying our only hope is in Jesus, in what he did in his body and what he did by shedding his blood for us. So that's what we're celebrating. We do prepare our hearts. We deal with any relational issues that we have between God, that's sins we need to confess. You can only confess a forgiven sin in Christ, so he's forgiven us, but we keep the relationship up to date by dealing with those things. And this is also a meal that you only take if you really believe the gospel. If you're not sure yet that you have trusted in Christ through faith in the gospel, love to talk to you right after the service. Uh, but just go ahead and bypass the meal uh, today because th- this is representation saying, I believe this is true. Only Jesus can save me, and that's what I'm trusting in. So we'll worshipfully enjoy this music, and then you'll find your place around the room to, to receive the bread and the cup and take it back to your, to, back to your seats.